Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, talking about guns and gun violence again. A look at NYCHA with the city council's public housing chair and a Myrtle Avenue art walk. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Ashley Ford, and today feels different. How could you not be inspired by these kids in Tallahassee, in D.C., at the CNN town hall, staging walkouts across the country? How could you not think this is the moment when the conversation on guns might shift? Well, you could be a cynic who thinks the NRA won't back down, and that if they won't, neither will the villainous Congress members whose pockets they line, You might consider that the NRA will stay predictably silent for a bit, let its money do the talking, and maybe back some watered-down non-solution solution and implicate everything except guns in these latest deaths. You might also watch AR-15 sales spike in parts of Florida, gun manufacturers' stocks rise, and conservative wingnuts smear the teenage survivors who just watched their classmates get gunned down calling them shills for the less so-called quote-unquote obsession with, with erasing the Second Amendment. There's a cold place in hell for the individuals peddling that untruth. But I side with the hopeful. And I believe that this activated army can be the catalyst we so desperately need. Theirs is a strong story, and they make a powerful block, soon to be a voting block. That's right. These kids are 16 and 17, and although they won't be voting in the midterms, they will be voting in 2020, and I'm betting they'll remember this. So to Marco Rubio and others who plan on letting the clock run out on this moment of outrage, you might soon be out of a job. On the show today, more about guns, specifically about how politicians link guns to mental illness in order to avoid doing their jobs, a conversation with City Councilmember Alika Ampri-Samuel about racial and economic justice and a Myrtle Avenue art walk for Black History Month. But first, these things. Swastikas were etched into the sides of two vehicles in the predominantly Jewish neighborhood of Borough Park on Wednesday. The NYPD's Hate Crimes Task Force is investigating the incident, but does it really matter whether it was perpetrated by hate-filled anti-Semites or idiotic kids? It just needs to stop. Either way. A not-very-good Brooklyn bank robber left two banks empty-handed, according to the NYPD. On two separate days this week, the would-be crook passed handwritten notes demanding cash to two bank tellers, who apparently just said no and walked away. The forlorn man left both banks without raising a fuss or, more importantly, a gun. I think he needs to find another job. But the police may find him first. A picture of his face is all over the place, including here. (laughs) If you've been watching towers go up in downtown Brooklyn, it may seem like there's very little vetting of design, no coordination, and no central plan. But I guess that's just how it goes. You buy a plot, plots, and you can pretty much build whatever you want. That seemed to be the case also with a luxury 35-unit property going up on Tompkins Avenue in Bed-Stuy. But apparently the poor taste was nipped in the bud by some outraged residents who vented on social media. They called an early architect's rendering a Bulgarian neo-Goth supervillain crack lair. Not sure what they have against Bulgarian design, but this mock-up was pretty whack. For those who can't see, it had some weird faux granite exterior with a lightning bolt-shaped window looking as if it had been layered with spider web. Thankfully, that was scrapped, and the new building is finally going up with a more tasteful facade. 
big, normal windows, red brick and stucco, etc. I'm all for funky, but your building shouldn't look like a toddler's art project, usually. Coming up, our first conversation. Last Wednesday, a teenager killed 17 of his former classmates and teachers at a high school in Florida with an AR-15 assault rifle. Too soon? Too late? Too hard to talk about efforts to stop these tragedies from happening? Our next guest wants to make sure we talk the right way about how to stop these tragedies from happening. And making it about mental health is not the right way. In fact, he says, it only pushes us further from real solutions. To tell us about this, we welcome back to the show author, Vanderbilt professor of sociology and psychiatry, and Brooklynite, Jonathan Metzl. Jonathan, thank you for coming back. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to be back. So, Jonathan, you know, on the one hand, it's great to see you. On the other hand, it sucks to have you back to talk about this stuff. I wish we never had to talk about it again, but not anytime soon, right? Um... Post-mass shooting, can you talk to me about what you're seeing in the aftermath of this particular situation? Well, absolutely. I think that there's certainly a level of kind of cultural helplessness that we've felt in the aftermath of many mass shootings, which is, on one hand, mass shootings themselves Mm -hmm. are very traumatizing, and there's a sense that people who are the victims of mass shootings are, you know, people going to movie theaters, kids Mm -hmm. in schools, things like that. So there's this sense of empathy and helplessness that what could anybody do in a, you know, dark movie theater or a school or something like that. And the other level of helplessness is that there are these narratives that filter through our society that because of our division about guns or because of the power of the corporate gun lobby, that there's nothing to be done. And so, you know, the, right. the, the other part of this helplessness is a kind of common sense that this is just going to keep happening because we can't come to any kind of consensus. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing uh, very importantly in the aftermath of this particular mass shooting in Florida is the emergence of a new kind of grassroots gun violence prevention movement mm-hmm. um, in which people are really first of all, pushing back on those standard narratives of helplessness led by these amazing high school kids, and also combating the sense that we don't know anything, we can't do anything. So what's great for me as somebody who's studied this for for a long time is not just the activism, it's that people really seem to be educating themselves about these questions of gun policy, which I think are very important. Jonathan, one of the things that I saw last night when I was watching the CNN town hall uh, was that the NRA spokesperson, is that what she is? Dana Loesch, was sitting there talking to the students and to this room full of people, and she consistently kept saying, well, if the mentally ill were kept away from guns, she said, crazy, you know, these crazy people come out of no, you know, and it was like, she tried to turn it into like this extreme circumstance, and I think part of the problem is it's really, really hard to keep that narrative that this is an extreme circumstance when people are becoming desensitized to it because it happens so often. But the thing I wanted to ask you as a psychiatrist who's really taken a hard look Mm -hmm. at the connections between, you know, mental health and violence and specifically gun violence, how do we talk to people who just say this only happens because crazy people exist? Because the mentally ill or people with mental health issues basically are around. 
we will always have to be a little worried about mass shootings. Well, certainly, let me just say first empathically that I can understand why we turn to the ma to the mental illness narrative in the aftermath of mass shootings for a couple of reasons. One, as we see in this case and many others, is that many mass shooters have histories of psychological problems, conduct mm -hmm. problems, substance abuse problems, abuse, factors like that. And so it's not like I'm saying you know, that mental illness isn't important. Certainly, mm -hmm. that's certainly the case. And also, just as a nation, as we were just talking about a moment ago, we become traumatized. And I think what happens when you become traumatized is you want to kind of protect yourself and say, here's us, civilized mm -hmm. society, and here's them, the crazy people out there. And so, in a way, it right. divides this kind of clear line between us and them. And so, in that sense, on a cultural level, I understand why this mental illness narrative makes sense. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of it is I feel like um, there are many, many problems with this narrative. Mm. Uh, and partially, it's just that the NRA has been pitching this narrative since, really since uh, Sandy Hook. Uh, th their idea is basically we don't need a gun registry, we need a national mental illness registry. People like Ann Coulter argued that gu guns don't kill people, the mentally ill do. And this is repeated again and again and again, mm -hmm. and now prominently by, by Donald Trump. And it's a problem for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think the Florida shooting is a terrific example. Mental illness is just one of many factors that right. leads somebody to commit a to commit an act like this. And mm -hmm. in many cases, mental illness is down the list beneath a bunch of other factors, including how did the person get their gun in the first place, which is mm -hmm. something that that mental illness story never really lets us talk about. So oh, yeah. on, one on one hand, it's a, a complete diversion. Um, the other is, again, using the Florida case as an example, here's a very troubled uh, young man who has a history of depression, mm -hmm. some conduct problems, um, maybe autism or attention deficit, but that also defines hundreds of thousands of other people in this country. And so there's no way that a psychiatrist like myself could pick out in advance which right. men of the hundreds of thousands of people who have depression are going to go on to commit an act. And so in that regard, I feel like when we, when they, everybody says, oh, it's about mental illness, the flip side is, therefore, we should institutionalize people or psychiatrists could pick people right. out. And, and that's actually not the case. The real question is, why are there so many guns, and how did this person get their gun? It's a policy question. It's not a mental illness question. And I agree with that, that it is a policy question and not a mental illness question. Um, one of the things that I have read quite a bit, and I always wonder how this fits into the conversation, uh, because in the places that I read, and, you know, like, I will not pretend that I'm not probably in some sort of media bubble and not getting enough information from other people, but one of the things that I see quite often is that um, one of the most common through lines of mass shooters is a previous record of either domestic violence or violence against women. Mm -hmm. um, what does that fall under? Like, what does that mean? Like, because that's not a mental illness, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, that's a behavior. But it comes from something, right? And the New York Times this past week published an op-ed by comedian and writer and I think author Michael Ian Black where he talked about the issue with boys mm -hmm. and the fact that uh, boys in general and the markers of masculinity are typically violent or encourage violence or entitlement or mm -hmm. see women as objects and that those beliefs lead to a desensitization that leads to mass shootings. Now, I am not a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a therapist, nothing like that. But I read that, and then I go and I look at these instances of mass shootings, mm -hmm. and a lot of times they are either fueled by a guy 
upset about a woman or a guy who leads some manifesto where he talks about how women don't like nice guys or something like it's like where does that fit into the conversation? Well, certainly the, those are prominent characteristics of many mm -hmm. recent high-profile mass shooters. But I feel like the issue really is there are two separate conversations that are happening that we have to mm -hmm. be very wary of not merging. Mm -hmm. um, and one is a bigger conversation in our culture about about the meaning of masculinity, about the ways that guns fit into the ways that men identify with that masculinity or resolve conflicts. What, mm -hmm. what kind of society do we live in? What kind of constructions of masculinity do we have? And mm -hmm. certainly I think that those are very important issues to discuss as we talk about the role of guns in society and mm -hmm. also as we talk about gun laws, to be honest. Right. The other the other conversation is what tells, what traits were there that could have prevented or predicted a, a mass shooting? Mm -hmm. And in that regard, I think that all of these factors, this, this factor of toxic masculinity um, is, an, is another example of something that's part of the story that we tell after a mass shooting mm -hmm. to try to explain to ourselves this pressing kind of searing question, why would somebody act this way toward other people? Right. But the problem is there's nothing diagnostic. There's nothing predictive. In other words, if we banned guns for everybody who had toxic masculinity in this country. <laughs> I mean, I don't exactly want to go there. Um, right. <laughs> but, but, but I would say that in a way, so there's nothing that, that in a sense, there's nothing really about that that says, therefore, we should have known in advance that police right. or somebody should have known in advance. It's really, it's really um, two, two, again, two conversations. One is about the role of guns in society and masculinity. But if, if we're looking at the prediction and prevention question, the question again really has to go to what kinds of gun policies do we mm -hmm. have that make it easier for people who are at risk um, to get firearms? And unfortunately, those conversations go in opposite directions. They do. And I, I mean, I can give you an example. We know from a public health standpoint, for example, that um, substance use or alcohol um, and weapons don't mix very well. It kind of fuels rage. People act in an impulsive way. Mm -hmm. Many gun suicides are impulsive, and certainly many conflicts are, 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 um, are, are um, you know, people are drinking at those times and oh, things yeah. like that. So you'd think from a public health standpoint that it would not be a great idea to allow weapons in bars, for example. But mm -hmm. in the South where I live, oh, you yeah. can carry loaded handguns in, into bars. And so in a way, I feel like that public health frame is very important. It's about, it's about, it's about, um, it's about um, you know, really preventing something from happening rather than predicting it. I think, and, and I think you're onto something there, absolutely. But one of the things that I hear then is people go, well, that's my right. That's my Second Amendment right, to be able to have my gun whenever, wherever, I, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the right I have. And I, I, I wonder if, much like, you know, the, uh, the First Amendment, if the Second Amendment isn't at times being misrepresented by people when we talk about these gun laws and when we talk about making, you know, common sense gun regulations, people invoke that second right. How do you have those conversations with people who just want to say, hey, Second Amendment rights, so there's nothing we can do? Well, first of all, it's important to note that there are many people who are responsible gun-owning citizens mm -hmm. who don't feel like they adopt the NRA's position that any any 
possible regulation or limitation on gun rights anywhere is an affront to gun rights mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, and most gun owners actually aren't NRA members. It's important yeah. to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at opinion polls, even though we've been led to believe that we're so polarized as a country that we're never going to get along. Um, oh, no. Most, the opinion polls I've seen yeah. have said that, like, no, the majority of people, even gun owners, right. are totally for more common sense gun regulation. And so many of us as Americans are, I think, being subject to a very extreme an extreme agenda uh -huh. that's being pushed by a particular corporate lobby. And so mm -hmm. in that sense, first of all, I just want to say that there is there is a Second Amendment right in this country, mm -hmm. um, and many of the policies that are being talked about right now, things like background checks, gun violence, restraining orders, legal age of purchase, mm -hmm. all these factors, they're, none of them are like, we're going to go take everybody's guns away, because nobody's doing that, and right. nobody wants that. Nobody wants um, that. And so in that sense, I think what we're thinking of is how can we live in a society mm -hmm. where there are a lot of weapons? It's, we're kind of unlike many places in that regard. How can we regulate a society that respects people's gun rights on mm -hmm. one hand and on the other hand creates rules through, through which we can live? And so in that sense, I feel like we're all gun owners and people who are worried about guns, we're all being a, a, done a, a, a really profound disservice mm. by being subject to this extreme agenda that's being pushed by the corporate gun lobby, I think. Oh, my gosh. Well, I think you're right. And I think that it's going to take more common sense conversations like these and like the ones that hopefully people are having out there in the world right now. Thank you so much for being here today, John. My pleasure. Thanks so Thank much. City Housing Authority, or NYCHA, has been in the news a lot this year, for all the wrong reasons. As a result, the housing commissioner and the mayor are in the hot seat. But they're among the few feeling the heat, as the boilers in many city housing developments haven't been working. It may feel like winter is over, but we still have a month left, and the storm clouds haven't yet cleared. What does the future hold for NYCHA? We have with us today Council Member Alika Ampri Samuel who is chair of the Public Housing Committee, to tell us about that and other items on her legislative, on her legislative agenda. Woo. Welcome to 112BK. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. One of the things that we were just talking about before we even got into the interview is the fact that you're new. So much <laughs> of this is just happening for you. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like being a new person on the council member, like what, like what, as a city council, what is it like being a new person? Like, how do you, how are you feeling mm -hmm. day to day? How is it working mm -hmm. out? Is there anything unexpected happening? <laughs> you know, what's what's interesting is um, I still don't know quite how to feel. Yeah, because just over just the, from the day I started is when the cold season hit, mm -hmm. and when they handed the, handed me the keys to my office, I walked into the district office and all the pipes burst. <gasps> And then the very next day is when I started getting calls from the NYCHA residents about no heat and hot water. Oh, no. And so it's been a whirlwind, to say the least. Yeah. Um, um, it's a, a lot of challenges that I was not expecting on day one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's just, um, we've been, I, I say that NYCHA and my district in particular mm -hmm. is always in a state of um, emergency in, in some sense. And mm -hmm. um, the work that has to be done, we have to always think that it's an urgent matter. Right. And so um, it's been a lot over the past few weeks. Right. Um, but I'm up for the challenge mm -hmm. and um, I'm thankful for being 
in the position to to be that voice and do something and to actually do something about yeah, it you know a yeah. lot of people it's like it's nice to know mm -hmm. that you can do something in a moment even if you can just get people a little bit closer exactly it's not like there's that's something really rewarding exactly. about that so talk to us about what's going on with NYCHA mm -hmm. why have there been so many problems you know every once in a while like I, I know personally you have to wonder it's like were there always this many problems and I'm just now hearing about mm -hmm. them or is something happening in this moment? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that um, what we see happening mm -hmm. is something that has been, it, it, it's, it's inevitable mm. because of the lack of funding to the agency right. on every level, mm -hmm. especially the federal government. And so with a car, if you don't maintain your car, if you're not if you're not, you know, getting your car serviced and new tires and, and changing the oil, if you don't have money to fix your car, it's going to one day break down on you and, oh, yeah. and it could be break down on you on the middle of a highway. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what you see happening at NYCHA. If there's no funding going into the building to help with repairs and capital right. and everything else, is going to collapse around you. Right. And it was just a matter of time. And mm -hmm. so we see it collapsing around us. But I would say that um, because of the New York City Council hearings, mm -hmm. um, the public is on notice. Oh, yeah. Between the hearings and the media mm -hmm. um, focused so much attention on what's happening at the, with the agency, it's, it's, it, oh, it, yeah. it feels different. Well, you guys just a had a rally, didn't it. you? Um, we did just have a rally on mm -hmm. the steps of City Hall um, right. the other day, and it was, again, to, to say to New York City Housing Authority, okay, enough is enough. When are we going to see some changes? And not just mm -hmm. to NYCHA, but also to the administration, to the mayor, what's happening with the temporary fixes. Mm -hmm. And um, last week, we saw the federal government um, put out their their budget, oh, an yeah. American budget, right? Mm -hmm. And we saw the cuts on the federal level was some $8.8 .8 billion decrease. Oh, yeah. And so, um, you know, just stand on the steps of City Hall with the residents as well as with um, Rapper Ja Rule, who, yes. who lent his voice to say, okay, we are coming together as a collective body to mm -hmm. demand um, attention, to demand action. Mm -hmm. And um, you'll see that um, going forward every week if we have to stand there until we get results. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, that just, between, I'm going to be real, between Ja Rule and then, like, you're on the steps and you're trying to get the funding that you need to be mm -hmm. able to just make sure people have decent housing. Oh, the fact that you have to, like, the idea to me that it makes a difference to have, and I know it does make a mm -hmm. difference to have a celebrity there. Mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. it makes a difference mm -hmm. for these people to show up for the neighborhoods mm -hmm. that they care about. Now we need and more. The neighborhoods who, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and I know that you need more. We need but more it's celebrities too. It's still a shame that mm -hmm. you need that. Um, can you tell me what are some of the changes that mm -hmm. you guys are trying to make? Because, you know, until you get the funding, mm -hmm that you need, it's mm -hmm. like, you gotta work with what you've got. Mm -hmm, so how, how do you maximize mm -hmm. the amount of help mm -hmm. you can do mm -hmm. when you don't have enough to begin well, with? Well, there are a lot of changes that are happening already on the mm -hmm. management, le well, on the executive level. You see that the new um, general manager is coming on board this week, um, um, Vito Masachulo from HPD. But mm -hmm. um, what I've um, just recently proposed was when I was working at NYCHA, I saw that there was a, a, a missing voice at the table 
on mm -hmm. the executive level, and that voice was from the actual residents. I'm a former NYCHA resident, um, right. but at the same time, I don't live in NYCHA today. Mm -hmm. And But I think it's imperative to have that voice at the table. Absolutely. And so the same way you'll have a chief financial officer or a chief um, technical, like technology officer, a chief operating officer, there should be a chief resident officer, mm -hmm. someone that currently lives in the NYCHA developments, but have that skill set, have that executive mindset to know what's happening, um, where there can be some disconnect, and be able to bring that voice from of the people mm -hmm. beyond the management level on the development level, but into 250 Broadway on right. the 12th floor. And so I think if you have that um, voice of reason mm -hmm. at the table, during senior staff, that could make all the difference as well. Absolutely. I can see how that would be true. Um, I know one of the things that you guys are working on and that you've been talking about are these two detention centers in Brownsville. Oh. And <laughs> sort of trying to take those from being less of detention centers and more like education centers wow. for people who need a little bit more Okay, okay. Doing your homework. So. <laughs> on the 41st Council District. Well, I so, mean, yeah. Talk so, to me about that. So, um, right now, there's a lot of um, conversations around the closure of Rikers Island, mm -hmm. as well as the raise the age, where 16 and 17 year olds should not be housed with the older population. They should not be um, housed at Rikers Island, and they should be placed in juvenile detention centers. Right. So um, in my district, along mm -hmm. with 26 public housing developments, mm -hmm. I also have Crossroads Detention Center. Mm -hmm. um, one of the two um, city facilities is Horizon in the Bronx and there's Crossroads in my district. Mm -hmm. And we also have Ella McQueen, which is a juvenile detention center that's on a state level. Mm -hmm. And so when they, um, they have a mandate to um, have the 16 and 17 year olds off of Rikers by October mm -hmm. of this year, and so they will be housed at Crossroads, and they're looking to um, possibly house the others at Ella McQueen. Wow. And so we want to make sure that those, um, those young people have the resources and services that they need, mm -hmm. and that is decreasing the level of beds in the facilities and increasing the number of um, educational classrooms and um, opportunities to learn a skill so when they are released to their families, the mm -hmm. families have what they need to be able to, like, wrap around services and yes. everything else, and yes. those young people can go into... I don't know, the workforce, vocational mm -hmm. programs, and um, get the education that they need so that they don't wind up back in the system. Right. So um, that's a huge focus in my district, in okay. addition to public housing. Good. So first of all, it just sounds like you're real busy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so busy. And I wish you the best of luck with everything that you have going on moving forward. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your oh, time. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay. Thank you. Until next time. Because you're going to come back. Yes. We have more to talk yes. about. We have a lot more to talk <laughs> We're coming to the end of Black History Month. And what better way to commemorate than with art? The Myrtle Avenue Brooklyn Partnership has been hosting their sixth annual Black Art Story Month, themed Sankofa. Go back and get it. With art forms ranging from the visual arts to poetry to theater to storytelling. And the best part, it's all free. Here to tell us more are Jennifer Stokes from the Myrtle Avenue Brooklyn Partnership. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And Thomas Piper, a performance artist. Welcome to 112BK. You're welcome. Thank you. So can you just tell me, first of all, Jennifer, about Art Story Month? Like, how did this happen? When sure. did it start? 
It's a little bit of what you said earlier. It started mm -hmm. six years ago, and it actually came out of a staff meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, we were sitting there, and our current uh, executive director, Meredith Phillips Almeida, she said, you know what? I want to do something during Black History Month, and I want to pay homage to uh, the many artists in the neighborhood. And so there began, right at the uh, staff meeting, uh, Black Art Story. Wow. And so we've been doing it uh, since 2013, so yes, for six years, and uh, really excited about it. Uh, I'll just go on a little bit more. I was going to say it's very much a uh, uh, anchored by visual art because we always okay. have an art walk, uh, you know, where we match uh, uh, business owners up mm -hmm. with artists and you see art along Myrtle Avenue, uh, our wonderful uh, 20 block stretch of Myrtle Avenue in Fort Greene and Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. And then, uh, also, then every Friday, it has changed certainly throughout the years, but mm -hmm. for the most part, one of the things that works for us as well is to then every Friday to have more like, you know, performance art or literary art at mm -hmm. businesses, as, as small businesses along Myrtle as well. So it's really, it's very much an exciting time, uh, that marriage between uh, different uh, local organizations and wonderful artists like uh, Thomas that come out and, and yes. do um, and, and perform. So we're excited about it. Thomas, tell me about some of your work that we're going to be able to see at the Art Walk. Okay, well, um, I'm a part of an event called Currency. Mm -hmm. So basically what I'm going to be doing is there's going to be a discussion and I'm going to be inspired by the discussion listening in on the discussion and I'm a musician um, I'm an artist as well but I'm a musician so I'm going to be creating music off of the discussion wow. um, I, I do a weekly show on YouTube called Beat Design mm -hmm. so I do a lot of electronic improv and singing and vocal looping and mm -hmm. making songs on the fly so this is like a perfect oh, thing where wow. I'm going to hopefully take pieces from the, the discussion and and create a song or some sort of piece musically from that. That sounds vibe. amazing. Yeah. And Jennifer, can you tell me, what is Sankofa? What does it mean? Why is it the theme this year? Sure. Sankofa, every year uh, we have a curator. We select the curator, and that curator then uh, sets the theme uh, for for the year's a black art story, uh, this year's theme was set by artist Ramon uh, artist Ramona Candy. I was about to say visual artist, but she does so much mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, in, in the arts. But uh, by vi by visual and and performing uh, artist Ramona Candy, uh, and so once that theme is set, then mm -hmm. it means that all of the artwork that's in the windows, all of the uh, all of the performance and literary arts in the businesses on Fridays, it means that it is speaking out of that theme. So when Thomas talked about currency, it's certainly uh, looking back at the, uh, uh, the current uh, system and looking at right. what it was built upon and just sort of envisioning other ways uh, currently to look at like how do how do we look at it more sustainably how do we mm -hmm. look at it more humanely and so those are some of the things I feel like I would be remiss without speaking about some of the partners that we have and here I am sitting in brick and brick has been one, is one of our partners it was part of our kickoff event mm -hmm. uh, with uh, university settlement uh, New York City's very first intergenerational 
intergenerational uh, community arts council uh, mm -hmm. with lots of different uh, players who came to uh, the Ingersoll Community Center. And so Brick was very much a very large part of that along with uh, uh, Jessica Sutra as well right. as um, Allison Fleminger. So I do want to give a nod there. Uh, also, we have uh, Suheli Bautista Carolina mm -hmm. and Willow Books. That was our literary Friday, which was very much looking at artists of, you know, artists mm -hmm. like, you know, Claude McKay, uh, uh, just so many, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks and looking at um, authors such as that. And then those um, poets or spoken word artists then, you know, read their own work, but also mm -hmm. read the work that they were inspired by. Ramona oh. Candy herself on a Friday had her wonderful art. And then, of course, Jack this coming Friday. This, I mean, it sounds amazing. Yeah. How do people come see it? Um, well, you for my thing, it's going to be at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, mm -hmm. um, Building 92, mm -hmm. um, 7 p.m. to 9.30. Mm -hmm. um, so just, and um, you can RSVP at Eventbrite, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. 7 to 9.30 when? Um, oh, Friday. Friday. Yep, Friday. The, the, and how, and so, and so if people want to come to the Art Walk, do they just, when, can they just come through? Do they just show up? They can definitely come through this, the uh, Building 92 at the mm -hmm. Brooklyn Navy Yard is one of our larger venues, but I would say for the most part, if they should take a look at our website, Myrtle Avenue, all spelled out, MyrtleAvenue.org mm -hmm. or MyrtleAvenue.org, mm -hmm. and we have our full schedule there as well as Eventbrite. They can sign up that way as well. Fantastic. But I, yes, thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. I love that. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank I you. really appreciate it. Can't wait to have you back next year to talk about <laughs> Art Walk number seven. Thank it's you. going to be fantastic. Thank Have you. A good Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back next week with a look back at Trayvon Martin and the movement his life inspired on the anniversary of his death. Hacktivists in the government's crosshairs and a special episode on the city's transit system. I hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown. Shereen Barkey, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>